Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Katie Driggs Campbell. Katie is a postdoc at Stanford in the Intelligent Systems Laboratory in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Katie, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am really looking forward to this conversation. So as you know, we are kind of in the midst of a series of podcasts on autonomous vehicles and Usually we end up talking to folks that are in CS or, you know, electrical engineering or other disciplines, but you are out of the department of, again, aeronautics and astronautics. (laughs) And so I'm really looking forward to digging into the connection between that and autonomous vehicles. And I guess a good way to start is to have you tell us a little bit about your background and your path to what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'll tell you a little bit about, I guess, how I ultimately ended up in an aerospace department. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I started out in electrical engineering, actually. So I got, I did my undergrad at Arizona State University, but I was really interested in control systems and ultimately robotics. So I was really interested in how we can control and interact ultimately with people. So when I applied to grad school, I applied to mostly robotics programs. So then I ended up at UC Berkeley where I worked with Rujna Baichi in robotics, and that was in electrical engineering and computer science. So I slowly shifted to computer science. And that's, I guess, when I first started working on intelligent vehicles. So when we first got started on this, this was, you know, six some years ago. So autonomous vehicles weren't, I guess, they hadn't really quite hit the road. So we were actually looking at... (laughs) No um, pun intended. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We were actually working on semi-autonomous vehicles. And we found that the big problem with semi-autonomous vehicles was how do you model the human? So we started thinking about how we can model the human, how we can design control systems to keep people safe. So we thought a lot about texting while driving, how different environmental influences will affect your driving abilities, and how we can ultimately you know, design active safety systems to keep you safe. And slowly over the, the years, this shifted to autonomous vehicles like everyone else, where still the human had a huge impact. So we were still thinking about how people either interact with autonomy in the vehicle or how the autonomous vehicle can interact with other people or human drivers on the road around them. That's sort of how I slowly shifted into autonomous vehicles. Yeah, so then I finished my PhD and I started working in an aerospace lab. So we're the AI section of the aerospace department here. And so the lab I work in is famous for air flight and collision avoidance systems, actually. Okay. Yeah, so thinking about how we can design safety systems for planes, which isn't all that different from vehicles, actually. So the lab I'm in is actually mostly funded by vehicle companies and working on autonomous vehicles and decision-making for vehicles. So it's sort of a different than maybe your, what, when, what you might expect from an aerospace department, but a lot of the systems are pretty similar. And I imagine that that aerospace departments have been working on this problem of, you know, autopilot, right, comes from, you know, piloting a plane. And, you know, space programs and things like that have been trying to have autonomous or semi-autonomous remote vehicles on, you know, like the lunar lander, things like that. <laughs> I imagine there's, that there's quite a history in aeronautics and aerospace departments around this kind of work. Is that the case? Yes, yes, definitely. 
So I've heard aerospace described as the department that is or studies the system of systems, which is exactly what autonomous vehicles are. It's exactly what planes are. But it's really thinking about how all these different components and the pilots and autonomy and all these things sort of fit together. So, so mm. yeah, definitely. And exactly what you said, there's a long, long history of dealing with automation in the aerospace industry. So it really sort of fits nicely into a lot of the same paradigm. Awesome. Awesome. So what's your research focus there? So here I am currently working on generally autonomous vehicles. So a lot of what I've been doing (laughs) is the decision-making and control. So how can we use things like deep learning to come up with very human-like decisions? Okay. And how then do we use these sort of perhaps not the most trustworthy systems like deep learning can be? How can we design then robust controllers to execute these decisions? So how do we still get some of the robustness from the more traditional learning control techniques while using these more advanced sort of AI tools? Mm. So what do you mean when you say human-like driving? Right. So I think, well, personally, when I think about autonomous vehicles hitting or coming onto the road relatively <laughs> soon, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no more puns. We need to think about how they'll integrate with the human drivers that are currently on the road. We can't expect that there's going to be, you know, homogeneous autonomous vehicles anytime soon. So they need to be able to interact with other humans on the road, and the other humans on the road need to be able to interact with that autonomous vehicle. So you can't have the autonomous vehicle doing things that are unexpected, even if they might be optimal in some sense. It needs to be optimal in the social context that it will be driving in. Mm-hmm. And so responding to erratic St. Louis or New York drivers, those are the ones that I know the best, but I'm sure everyone has their, I guess probably wherever you are is the the drivers that you hate. Yep, yep. California stops. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned that, and then you also mentioned an aspect of the research that is, so you, you know, we're, we're doing all these things to build out these deep learning models. And then I, you know, maybe we think about the deep learning models as directly controlling things, but it sounds like you're suggesting that a big part of your research is, well, maybe if we put some other stuff between the deep learning models and the the drive-by-wire systems, you know, we can get better results. Yes, yes. And I think from my perspective, it's really important until you can really prove things about how the deep learning and the decision-making that comes from these learning models are uh, how they're going to function. I think it is important that you have sort of some more reliable method for actually executing these maneuvers and making sure that they're <laughs> safe and interpretable even. So can you maybe walk us through, you know, some of the specifics about the research in the, you know, in each of these camps? I guess we can start with, you know, what are all of the research challenges associated with autonomous vehicles interacting with with human-driven vehicles? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the really big problems is that you basically, you can model people, but every model is only going to, or is going to have places where it fails. So coming up with a way to balance, you know, a general model of how people typically behave while still capturing sort of the crazy things that people also do is a really hard problem because you get something like you're either not accounting for the places where you really need to be safe. So when people do something really unexpected or maybe do something kind of crazy, 
But then on the flip side, you'll be over conservative if you only model those things. So you still want to be able to get to your destination. So there's some balance between, you know, being safe and actually driving normally. So figuring out how to balance that in an intelligent way is really, really difficult. And what's the general approach to that that you've taken in your research? So the general approach that I've taken is trying to do something like switching maneuvers. So if you have, you try and detect basically when people are starting to deviate from the normal sort of expected behaviors. If you have a typical model of how people behave, you can use that for the most part, but you have to always be aware and always be monitoring people for when they start, as I said, deviating. So you look for sort of like the anomaly driver. And then you can start saying, okay, this person's acting a little bit weird. I'm going to be more conservative around this driver. Hmm. What does it even mean to have a model of how people behave? Like, I guess I think of, I think of the stuff that I've seen, you know, around deep learning as maybe like a lower level, you know, kind of lower level models or capturing lower level, you know, ideas about how to interact, how a vehicle might interact with the world. Is there also a part of the system that is, you know, trying to capture at large like the behavior of, of people? Yeah, so at least in my work there is. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lot of my PhD work was coming up with general models of how people behave. So how do you take all these big data sets and come up with models that are useful from that? So, so yeah, basically... So what are some examples of things that you can get a model to, that you can kind of capture in a model about a person's behavior with regard to driving in particular? Mm -hmm. So in driving in particular, we've really been thinking about lane changing behaviors, since it's a pretty common maneuver, and it's pretty easy to find examples of. So in this work, we've been thinking about how people respond to merging behaviors. So if you try to cut someone off, how are they likely to respond? If you want to execute a maneuver, what sort of cues do you need to send to that person to make sure that they will actually let you in if the gap is not big enough? So how do you sort of handle these like social nuances um, in your motion and in your trajectory planning? Okay. What's the general approach you've taken to address that kind of thing? Like, is it changes to the way you model or is it, you know, a set of heuristics that you kind of build around the model or are you injecting things into the system otherwise? Right. So in this original work for modeling how people behave and how people respond, we were really trying to think about how we can come up with a robust prediction. So we actually came up with a new modeling method to capture these behaviors in a sort of a more general fashion. So instead of thinking about trying to predict a person by guessing their exact trajectory, but we started thinking about how we can come up with basically sets that they might follow. So we think of an area that they might enter, basically. So when you start thinking about things in terms of set behavior instead of just an exact trajectory, you get a much more robust prediction. So you might be off a little bit, but you'll still capture the general behavior. And this is sort of where, you, where what I was mentioning before with balancing being over-conservative and being quite precise kind of comes in. So when you start basically reducing the uncertainty in your prediction, you'll shrink the set down to something that's smaller and more precise. But if you're more uncertain or you start detecting some anomalies, you can grow the set out and capture more of the uncertainty. And that will just automatically influence how you change. So if you basically take these sets and incorporate them into your low-level controller that is planning and trying to keep you in safe regions, this will sort of automatically be captured by that. And in this work, is this, does the set represent, are you evaluating the set in terms of kind of, you know, in or out or 
likelihood of in or out or are you looking at like geographic regions as probabilistic fields that are maybe more continuous? Right, right. So a little bit of both. So we, the ultimate or the output of this model is a something like confidence intervals. So you get these sort of strict boundaries and a probability associated with these different basically level sets of trajectories. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. So once you pick what confidence interval you would like to pick, you have a strict set. And you can basically evaluate this by in or out. But you can also look at this as a, basically a series of confidence intervals. So then you get something like an empirical distribution back out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when you're implementing this in the lane changing context, is it, I guess I'm trying to, to picture the, I guess dimensionality is overloaded, but like if you, are you thinking about it from the perspective of a car and like the lane ahead, you know, how many feet from the vehicle another vehicle is likely to intrude on? So like a two-dimensional kind of interaction or is it more a three-dimensional interaction where you are thinking about the distance between your car and your lane and the other car in the other lane as well as where it might intrude into your lane? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So in most of the work that I've been doing, I've been looking at basically a set of three vehicle interactions. So if you think about predicting the vehicle that you want to merge in front of, you can think about the influences of that vehicle basically being what your actions will be in the vehicle in front of them. So we've been sort of looking at that network, but we can expand this out by sort of looking at things like clusters of behavior. So if you think about different vehicles and sort of inserting more influence on the vehicle, you can think about how this sort of generally happens by looking at clusters of behavior. So if there's more vehicles, you can basically do a lookup and look at more clusters or similar clusters, similar situations. And by the similarity metric, you can expand this out to more vehicles and larger networks and things like that. Okay. Yeah, I've seen some interesting videos of kind of driver behavior. And I think even autonomous vehicle interactions with drivers where, you know, if the vehicle isn't given a certain level of aggressiveness, it will just get stuck. Like it cannot, it cannot execute a lane change. And so there's, you know, there's this need that you're describing for the vehicle to, you know, not just be able to anticipate human behavior, but to start to emulate human behavior because like signaling to go into another lane isn't just, you know, putting on the blinkers. It's also like <laughs> starting to go into the other lane. Exactly. Exactly. I was talking to someone in LA about this and they said, if you turn your blinker on, that is a cue for the other driver to just speed up. Exactly. So you don't, <laughs> you don't just want that. Right. Right. So you've got, you've got this ability to kind of predict other drivers' behaviors and when they're likely to enter your lane and you can kind of expand that to multiple vehicles. Like how do you, what's the next step? How do you kind of build on that to create a more robust system? Right. So now that we have a good model of our environment, if we believe this is a good model of our environment. So the next layer that we were thinking about is how can we safely execute sort of high level decisions? And this is where we started using deep learning. So if we have a good representation of the environment, we want to think about should I execute a lane change? Will this help me achieve my goal? And also there was some, we wanted to see if we could capture things like sort of implicit rules. So 
there are some rules that aren't necessarily captured by the letter of the law. So like at intersections, there's a strict ordering that happens. So if one vehicle comes first, they get to pass through. There's some yielding rules, but people don't always follow these rules. And there's some uncertainty <laughs> in these rules. So we've been using deep learning and simulation to try and capture some of these sort of nuanced behaviors to come up with these sort of high-level decisions. Like what high-level action should I do? So these high-level actions can be things like execute a lane change or go ahead and move through the intersection now. And so we've been doing that with, uh, as I mentioned, deep learning. But deep learning in and of itself is not very trustworthy. So a lot of what we've been doing is trying to think about how we can develop new tools and new learning algorithms to try and make these systems more or give some insight to the confidence of the system. So can we determine when our deep learning algorithm is uncertain about its decision? And if we know when it's uncertain, we can decide whether or not we should listen to it or not. In this example, what's the training data? So in this example, we've been putting a lot of effort into coming up with good simulated traffic models. So we can basically train in simulation and then transfer it to a real vehicle, which is a whole other problem that we're also working mm-hmm. on. Okay. So the simulated traffic data is, I mean, I'm envisioning like the, the video game Frogger. <laughs> you've, just, you've just got all this traffic and you're, it's kind of moving at different speeds and is that how you're not literally but is <laughs> are you just <laughs> generating s- several lanes of traffic and how are you representing the the vehicles in this training data set for example right so there's a lot of work in the lab that I'm in that goes into coming up with good driver models for generating traffic so there's lots of really interesting work going on in actually using deep learning to mimic these driving behaviors so you can validate your autonomous vehicle So how do you generate these scenarios? How do you generate realistic behaviors? So then you can either train your system or just do some validation. So if you just need to make sure it works or get some metric for how likely it is to crash, you can use these validation tools to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to visualize the the training data set. Is it like, are you looking at a car as a, like a two-dimensional kind of representation of, of points or space or something like that? Or are there some simplifying assumptions or is it maybe more complex than that, you know, based on camera imagery or something? So these ones we are just using, we have a simulated LiDAR sensor. So from our Ego vehicle, we basically just use these detection points, which are pretty similar to what we can extract from sensors on a real vehicle. So from the ego vehicle's perspective, in simulation, you basically just get something like a LiDAR image, but projected down to just a 2D plane. Okay, got it. So is it the 2D plane from above the vehicle or the 2D plane like looking ahead from a vehicle? So for us, you can think of it as like an occupancy grid. So you can like look down at the world, your vehicle's in the center of it, and you get sort of this distance around the vehicle there. Okay, okay. (laughs) My next question was around the objective function. Like, how did you how did you construct the objective function for this model that you trained? Right. So, for these initial models to start, what we were using was a some tools called imitation learning. So, we basically wanted to figure out how we can imitate a model or imitate some expert model. So, we have some sort of expert behavior that we want to mimic. So, this can be a human, for example. So if we have some examples of how the human is going to behave or some example trajectories of this person driving, 
we basically want to try it and be as similar to this driver as possible or similar to this human. So mimicking the expert and training and transferring this knowledge over to our, our novice or our deep learning algorithm. Okay. So you've got your driver behavior model. You've trained a deep learning model that can try to optimize an objective relative to you know, some expert that it's imitating. What, what's next? So then once we have a model that can effectively mimic these high-level decisions, hopefully pretty well and hopefully in a safe way, that's when we started thinking about how we can actually implement this in a robust controller. So we've been using some pretty standard tools from control, like model predictive control and robust control, so we can take these high-level commands and turn them into trajectories that the vehicle then can follow quite smoothly. So basically using these commands or these high-level commands from the deep learning, now you can sort of start thinking about different models and sort of some of the differences between the simulation and the real-world car. So you can sort of extract the high-level information and execute it in the real vehicle. So that's actually what we're testing now. So we're putting this on a real vehicle and testing all of that. Nice, nice. You mentioned a couple of disciplines in control systems, robust control and model... Something model control? predictive control. Model predictive control. Can you mm-hmm. walk us through what those are and the assumptions that they, they're making and what they're trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. So at the heart of all of what we do is model predictive control. And in model predictive control, so basically using a model of your vehicle and the environment, it basically solves an optimization problem to give you an optimal trajectory over some finite time horizon. So say two seconds in the future, I'm going to plan the optimal trajectory to achieve my goal. And since this is just an optimization program, effectively, you can easily put in things like safety constraints. You can tune your trajectory so you have a smooth trajectory. And basically, by solving this problem, you can come up with your optimal trajectory. And the kind of cool thing about model predictive control is even though it's a finite time horizon, so it only works for about two seconds in the future or whatever your finite time is, and it's an open loop trajectory, you basically take one step in the future and then you resolve the problem. So you resolve this trajectory or for this trajectory at each time step. And so by doing this receding horizon, by sort of sliding along and constantly planning some time in the future, you actually approximate things like the infinite horizon. So basically the optimal control policy. So it's an open loop policy executed in a closed loop fraction. I was recently reading some reviews of you know some of the production driver assistance, like autonomous driver assistance, if you will, technologies like Cadillac has one, Mercedes has one, obviously Tesla. I forget the other one. I think it was Infinity that was in this article. And they talked about how, you know, one of the things that they noticed was that for most of these systems, I think Tesla was the only exception, like the car would basically bounce back and forth between the lane markers. Mm -hmm. And it, and I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, but it sounds like what you're what you're doing with model predictive control would tend to smooth out that kind of effect mm-hmm. as opposed to you know maybe deriving a, a path straight out of a deep learning model like is that a reasonable kind of intuition about this or does it show up in other ways No that's exactly right so by using this basically constant smoothing and optimization technique you do come up with much smoother trajectories It not only addresses things like the sort of jerky chattering, I guess, that happens when you sort of oscillate between lanes, but it also helps for things like overshoot 
and things like that as well, or jumping back and forth when you do things like turning. That usually comes from common planning and techniques like that. And now you're making me remember, you know, grad school control systems courses <laughs> with light dampening and all these other things that you need to think about to avoid, you know, overshooting yep. and oscillation. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's amazing how now that I'm implementing things on a real vehicle, how all of this original <laughs> control stuff is really coming back. Things I haven't thought about in like 10 years. <laughs> nice, yeah, nice. are very important. And so what are you seeing as you're trying to, you know, go from these models to implementing them on a real vehicle? Are you finding that, are you, are you surprised by anything? Are there things that, you know, were working fine in simulation, but, you know, need, needed to be tweaked as you moved to, to a real vehicle? Yes. I think <laughs> one of my favorite quotes was, or is, everything is doomed to work in simulation. So... Um, <laughs> Nice. We have all these nice simulation tools, but and we think we have things working really well, but a lot of it is still has to be hand-tuned. And it's amazing how some of these simple things, or especially when you kind of get caught up in a lot of the really cool stuff that's happening in AI, you think a lot of the really cool stuff comes out of the deep learning. But when you go to actually test things on the vehicle, so much of it comes down to this low-level control, actually. So it is kind of amazing how much time is actually spent on the... The, I guess, more traditional things. So as you said, like the dampening and making sure everything is smooth and tuning cost functions and things like that. So I think there's still a lot of work that has to go into the end-to-end -end stuff to make sure it works well. And is there kind of research into applying some of the the ways we optimize machine learning to optimizing you know, the, these control systems, like, you know, can you think of, can you apply like hyperparameter optimization to these control systems to find the right dampening constants and all that kind of stuff? Or is it, are the, you know, traditional techniques kind of good enough there? Yeah. So I think you can do some of those things, but again, you still have this problem where you ultimately have to put all of this on a vehicle, you have to test it there. And because you're testing on a real vehicle that is has a lot of very expensive equipment on it, <laughs> you have to be kind of careful with what you are willing to test and make sure you're very confident in this. So you can't do a full, you know, cross validation set on there unless you're confident <laughs> that it's going to work really well. But yeah, there's some work that we've been working on in robust reinforcement learning. So trying to do things like take into account some of the, the uncertainty that we think we might see or some of the things like model mismatch and trying to create, basically make sure that our control systems and our deep learning algorithms are robust to these uncertainties. So I think that should help it, but we'll, we'll see if that actually works or not when we actually go to the real vehicle with that work. Mm, can you elaborate on that work a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So we're building off of some tools in from what's called robust adversarial reinforcement learning. So in this framework, the basic idea is if you have some uncertainties in your model or uncertainties in your environment, you can actually treat this as a game between two players. So if you have your controller, which is, we'll call it the protagonist, and your antagonist, which is basically these disturbances or these uncertainties that are trying to sort of perturb your model in a negative way. Mm -hmm. So if you basically treat these both as agents that you want to train a model for, you can train your protagonist to achieve some goal, and then you can train your antagonist to basically get you to not achieve that goal. So by training these two, basically your antagonist and your protagonist iteratively, 
you develop something that approximates a robust controller. So you have your ultimate system is able to handle things like uncertainty in your model because you've been training it against a adversarial uncertainty or disturbance. So that's one way we're trying to deal with these model mismatches. We'll, we'll see how it works. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you finding that there's a, you know, kind of a cultural mismatch between the, you know, the, the, the folks that come from the, the traditional control systems perspective where, you know, you've, you've got, you know, established practices and like well-defined, you know, guarantees or, you know, at least laws of physics to kind of rely <laughs> on, you know, versus the, you know, folks that are more the deep learning camp where you're kind of just throwing a bunch of data against the wall and, you know, this thing is miraculously training itself. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge cultural, cultural gap there. So one of the things I try and do is try and sort of bridge that gap. But I think there's just a, it's almost like they're speaking different languages. <laughs> These two communities tend to get a little bit territorial in what they can and can't do. So yes, uh, in short. <laughs> awesome. Well, to, to close us out, are there, you know, what's, what's next for you beyond, you know, getting your vehicle working? Not that that's like a short task <laughs> or a foregone conclusion. What are some of the other things on the horizon for you and your work? Yeah, so some of the other things I've been thinking about is thinking about uh, autonomous vehicles at a little bit of a higher level or a broader perspective. So some of the recent work that I'm just starting has been on how can you use autonomous vehicles in some of these tools from planning to do things like assist in evacuation and disaster responses. So using some of these same tools to help there. We've also been thinking about how you can start applying some of these tools to fleets. So you can think about optimizing overall performance by Making small changes on a minor level, how can you, you know, do things when you have many, many vehicles all operating together? So, and so are these things like cooperative autonomy and swarming behaviors and the like? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. And so I think the evacuation planning is a little bit more of the cooperative side for the fleet performance. If you still have individual operators, so if you think of like a delivery fleet, you still have an individual there driving the vehicle and making decisions. So how can you optimize maybe their behaviors on a minor level and then have greater performance overall. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what's the best way for folks to learn more about your research or connect with you? Yeah, you can find me on the internet. So you can look at my website. So it's just stanford.edu backslash tilde krdc. Or you can shoot me an email, krdc at stanford.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Katie, thank you so much for, for joining me to discuss this. It's really interesting research, and I'm looking forward to keeping tabs on what you're up to. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Katie or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 59. To follow along with the Autonomous Vehicle Series, visit twimmelai.com slash AV2017. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at twimmelai or at Sam Charrington, or just leave a comment on the show notes page. Thanks again to Mighty AI for their sponsorship of this series. 
Be sure to check out my interview with their co-founder and CEO, Darren Nakuda, at twimlai.com slash talk slash 57. And take a look at what the company's up to at www.mty.ai. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.